You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. It's not about accountability. It's about political revenge. Don't come here looking at us for anti-Semitism. Look in your own damn mirror. This is about targeting women of color in the, in the United States of America. I Gentlemen, am so sorry, time has expired. that our country is failing you today. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. I see a shadow on my stage. And so, no matter how you measure, it's six more weeks of winter weather. You're tough, you're resilient, and you know how to have a good time, right? Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Both sides dig in over the debt ceiling after the big meeting as Congresswoman Ilhan Omar is thrown off the Foreign Affairs Committee today. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics with high drama in the House. We'll talk about it ahead with Congressman David Schweiker, Republican from Arizona, who just quit the House Freedom Caucus. And with our panel, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano, along today with Republican strategist John Hart of C3 Solutions. Later, the infrastructure law becomes the intersection of Washington and Wall Street. We're going to talk with Chris Cellino of Bloomberg Intelligence, who covers the heavy equipment makers like Caterpillar, that stand to make billions. A lot of moving parts today in Washington, beginning with posturing over the debt ceiling after the meeting between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy. Remember, this, right at this time yesterday, he was standing in the driveway of the White House. McCarthy says, don't be fooled by his optimism yesterday. There will be no standalone debt ceiling bill. Whichever way they want to talk about it, I'm very clear. We will not pass a clean debt ceiling here without some form of spending reform. So there'll never be a clean one. I don't know how they want to say it. That's fine. But at the end of the day, we're going to get spending reforms. I, I believe you have to lift the debt ceiling. But you do not lift the debt ceiling without changing your behavior. And that was just where things started today following the meeting. High drama on the House floor and hours of passionate debate over whether to kick Congresswoman Ilhan Omar off the House Foreign Affairs Committee. By the way, I'll spoil it for you. She was kicked off the committee. And these are just some of the things that we want to talk about here with Congressman David Schweikert, Republican from Arizona, with us on the program. Congressman, welcome back to Bloomberg. No, I, as you know, I'm a big fan. Um, it's nice to have someone out there at least has some intellectual capital of the discussion. <laughs> well, we're going to get to some capitalism here. Uh, you voted to support Kevin McCarthy on every ballot. I was just looking at the whole series here. Do you feel like he represented your interests when he met with President Biden? Did you like what he said when he came out? Yeah, well, first off, for Kevin, 
no matter what you believe you know about them. I've never had someone, you know, someone like myself who's, you know, conservative, a little bit libertarian leaning, and his ability to know the things I'm interested in. And he seems to be able to do that for every member of the conference. Hmm. You know, the discussion at the White House was sort of the first step of, are we going to be adults and have a conversation and understand this is actually an opportunity? Stressors in modern politics are opportunities to do policy that the rest of the time are too difficult to do. And my fingers are crossed that when the doors closed and the press went away, that there were actually adults talking. It's a refreshing concept. I was wondering, you know, because he he was very optimistic when he came out. He was talking about common ground, having respect for each other. I didn't know if he'd be criticized by certain elements of the party, uh, Congressman. And, And I wonder if your support for Speaker McCarthy has anything to do with news today that you're leaving the Freedom Caucus that you helped to found. No, uh, I think actually you're going to find even from the most populist member to the most conservative member to then the conference, we understand this is going to be the debt ceiling is a complex issue. For many of us, there's a number of moving parts. Um, I have a great concern on the structure of U.S. sovereignty. Uh, it's a little geeky, but you know how much could we put out long on the curve and those things to mm-hmm. avoid a, a future um, stress? Right. And you can't have those sort of technical conversations when you're doing political theater. So if you had the speaker come back out and say, we actually had a real conversation. We didn't just talk around each other with, you know, partisan platitudes. Right. That's a really good thing. That, that's absolutely positive. Is the Freedom Caucus involved in political theater? I think every person who is elected, right and left, that's how we communicate. Let's be honest. And and those in the media, we all we have to find a way to be listened to. And sometimes the way we get listened to is, you know, we shake our hands in the air. We use, you know, deep tones in the voice. Um, But it turns out a lot of what we have to now deal with is on a calculator, not on a television camera. Yeah. Is this your way of being heard? As I told you, one of the reasons I love Bloomberg is I'm allowed to geek out. I mean, I could... Yeah, think about that. Moments ago, I was talking about the yield curve <laughs> and you know the distribution of sovereign. Tell me where else I can go in modern media and all the listeners say, oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. Well, let's get a little deeper into it, because you sent a letter to the Treasury Secretary asking for information on exhausting debt management tools to pay outstanding bills if we hit the debt ceiling. Do you support prioritizing spending, as some have suggested, you pay interest on debt, stop paying other things until this is figured out? Um, the reason that was so important, and, and the letter uh, was meant uh, not as a gotcha, but actually a communication tool for everyone to understand. In 1985, GAO provided the then Treasury Secretary authority to prioritize. So if you're in a world where you have stunning amounts of U.S. sovereigns floating in the U.S. and around the world, you don't want an interest rate inflection because of stress. Mm-hmm. And communicating to the market saying, even if things got very cantankerous, U.S. Treasury has the right to take inbound revenues and cover those those instruments, yeah. cover the bond payments, covering the refinancing of those within the cap. And, and making sure that's part of the common understanding out there. Part of my goal is just quieting of the market. Take a look at long-term um, U.S. bond futures, they're just stable. Let's face it, bond traders are like the gold standard of IQ. They they get it. They understand what's going Well, it's true. 
<laughs> at least that's what they always tell me. Um, yeah. They get it. And some of this then is the next part of it. Okay, um, uh, Treasury Yellen, or Treasury Yelling, you actually have this authority. Here's this 1985 memo saying you have the right to prioritize. What have you done in your data system to make it so you can execute? And that's, again, messaging to the markets, or you really want to know that Janet Yellen's prepared to make this happen? Um, I think it's actually should be a bit of both. And I yeah. would think, and, and, and my intense frustration is anyone that runs around uses the word default, they're being duplicit. You know, go back to your first year business school, you know, your finance class, default is when you're not paying those payments. Right. Now, you can go back to Secretary Liu, who used to use the term, well, it's a technical default when we're building a bridge in Iowa and we're going to be late on our construction payment. Sure. Okay, that might be a technical default, but that is not a default on U.S. software. A credit default, understood. And, and, is that good public policy? Yes. When you're floating, you know, how many trillions of dollars of publicly held debt, Yeah. Um, you don't play games with it. Well, Democrats would say, you know, then pass a clean debt ceiling limit, we'll, we'll be done with the games. Those who actually use that language I think are not being serious because we need to telegraph the markets that we are taking U.S. debt seriously. In 10 years, we have a $2 trillion a year structural deficit in today's dollars. If we don't telegraph that we're going to start taking U.S. debt growth seriously, um, the markets are going to move against it. And so you're, you're being sandwiched both ways. You're being sandwiched by those who say, well, just give away on the debt ceiling. Telegraph to the markets you don't care, you're just going to keep borrowing. Yeah. Or you can do something more elegant. You come up with a package saying you're going to raise the debt ceilings, but with that, we're going to find fiscal constraint. We're going to add competition to healthcare markets and other things that drive the borrowing. And by that, we can telegraph that we're taking future borrowing seriously. Well, obviously, you're not going to agree with Democrats, and they're not going to agree with you over dealing with the debt ceiling or management of this issue. But there was passionate debate today in the House over removing Congresswoman Ilan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee. I believe you voted in favor, Congressman. And you you know what it's like to be uh, reprimanded, uh, as you were in 2020, removed from a committee. Why kick Omar off hers? Well, I, I wasn't removed from a committee in 2020. That was a fight with John Boehner many, many years ago. Um, and so, look, I have a history of sometimes being a bit cantankerous, and, and I'm working harder to be less annoying. But remember, Foreign Affairs Committee gets a lot of information we would call from the skiff. You get a lot sure. of things that may be classified secret. But it's because it's and, the Foreign Affairs Committee more than this particular case is, is the Republican yeah, but remember, perspective. She's not, but she's not, unlike what the Democrats did to a number of our members, we're completely removing them from committee. Um, uh, Congresswoman Omar can go on all sorts of other committees, but not one that actually gets top secret information. Congressman David Schweikert, Republican from Arizona, with us here on the fastest hour in politics. To be clear, he was removed from the uh, Finance Committee in the House uh, back in 2012. That was separate from the ethics violations in 20. We appreciate the congressman for being forthcoming as we assemble our panel because, boy, we talked about a lot there, and we'll get started right now with Jeannie Shanzano, of course, Democratic analyst and Bloomberg politics contributor, joined today by Republican strategist John Hart, co-founder of C3 Solutions. Uh, great to have you both here and looking forward to the conversation. Uh, Jeannie, I want to start with you on the debt limit. We're going to get into the Elon Omar bit in, in just a couple of moments here. 
But we were together on this program last evening when Kevin McCarthy emerged and we wondered, you know, how would this go over sort of the optimistic tone that he was striking in the driveway? But he did make it clear today. Don't be fooled. Uh, No clean debt limit bill. So has anything changed? Yeah, nothing has changed. We were maybe a little bit optimistic when he came out, but of course we knew that was a lot of posturing. And let's face it, where are we today in the United States? They are not negotiating on spending. They are not even negotiating on raising the debt ceiling. They are negotiating on whether in fact to negotiate about those things. And that's how far off we are from moving forward to an actual negotiation, if that's even in store, because of course the White House says no negotiation on the debt ceiling. We want to talk about spending, but we don't want those coupled. And today, Kevin McCarthy clarified once again that they are coupled and they will be coupled. And that's where we stand. (laughs) And Mitch McConnell has walked away from the entire thing completely. Well, I guess that's right. Uh, John Hart, welcome. It's great to have you as part of our conversation. We heard from Brian Deese today, of course, the outgoing uh, economic advisor at the White House, the president's top economic aide, who said on cable news that, you know, he thinks they're on to something good here, that yesterday's meeting was a good start. This town, as you know, he said, is all about relationships. This is the beginning of a process. Do these two respect each other coming out of that meeting yesterday? Yeah, I think so. And just to give your listeners uh, some context, as I was Tom Coburn's, Senator Coburn, uh, his longtime communications director. You sure were. And we helped pioneer the strategy of, of, frankly, using the debt limit to force the very conversation that Congressman Schweikart and McCarthy are trying to have today. So I so I'm certainly of the mind that it's a very it's a very appropriate, very timely conversation. If we're talking about raising the debt limit to also couple that with an honest conversation with the public about the long term impacts Mm -hmm. of the debt. And there's two really terribly adverse consequences. You know, I, I think the listeners are aware of this concept of tail risk, which is the low probability, highly adverse situation where if we have a sovereign debt crisis or the debt bomb, you know, phenomenon, uh, the tinderbox, if you will, mm-hmm. that's probably not going to happen. I think there's there's a lot of reason to think that that we're fairly solid as the world's reserve currency. That could change, though. But what we're seeing right now is uh, is an erosion of our ability to finance other priorities. And when you're spending $400 billion every year, and that number is going to go way up just on financing interest of the national debt. Mm-hmm. That is completely wasted capital. That should be in, in the free market. It should be available to innovators, uh, entrepreneurs, people doing the creative work of providing economic growth, opportunity, better housing, better food. That's the engine of economic growth. And so we're, we're literally starving the engine of growth by having an excessive debt. You know, Reinhardt and Rogoff uh, wrote a book, This Time is Different, Eight Centuries of Physical Folly, where they showed that when that, when when countries historically reached ni- the 90% debt to GDP threshold, yeah. you take off about a point of GDP growth. You know, so we're looking mm-hmm. at a 25, 33% uh, slowing down of the growth rate. And, and that's obviously that's terrible for uh, long-term economic growth and meeting all of our goals, our national security goals of containing China. Uh, of enabling Ukraine to to beat back Russia. 
So it's just it's very destructive on many, many levels. Well, one and, of the things and, that we talked about with with Congressman Schweikert was a prioritization uh, in uh, in spending. Uh, Jeannie, we talked about this when it was first floated a couple of weeks ago that you keep paying the interest on the debt. You stop funding other agencies. You suggested that might not even be legal. Uh, you definitely don't think it's appropriate. But is that something that Janet Yellen needs to be prepared for? You know, I, I think that they should be prepared for all kinds of scenarios at this point. I don't think they could take anything for granted. But there's a variety of questions about that, and not just the legality. You prioritize payment. I mean, just imagine if you and your family decide you're only going to pay your mortgage, but you're not going to pay your car bill. Doesn't your car company then say, hey, I don't know if I can trust this family going forward? And then there's <laughs> retribution there. So, you know, prioritization sounds like a good idea, sort of theoretically and generically. But when you get down to it, the people you're paying and the people you're not paying get to react to that as well. And that has significant consequences. So, you know, across the board, it's not a great solution. But should Yellen and the Treasury be prepared? Absolutely. At this point, they should be preparing for all kinds of scenarios. John Hart, uh, you wrote the book, uh, The Debt Bomb, A Bold Plan to Stop Washington from Bankrupting America. We only have 30 seconds here and we're going to have a lot more time ahead. But does prioritization, that plan we just talked about, delay the trigger on a debt bomb? Uh, not not very much. You know, the, the real solution, if, if politicians are intellectually honest, is you have to put everything on the table. You can't treat any area of the budget to sacrosanct. That includes looking at things like how do we structure entitlements mm-hmm. so that we can keep the promises we've already made to America's seniors without bankrupting the country and destroying our long-term ability to have a growing economy. This is going to be a great hour. It already is with Jeannie and John. Thank you so much for being part of our panel. And thank you for joining us on the fastest hour in politics. On to the debate on the House floor next. Passions running high. This is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. It's not about accountability. It's about political revenge. That is what it's about. We're not removing her from other committees. We just do not believe when it comes to foreign affairs, especially the responsibility of that position around the world with the comments that you make. She shouldn't serve there. My colleagues, I stand before you as a proud Jew and and 
a proud friend and colleague of Ilhan Omar. I don't need any of you to defend me against anti-Semitism. Mr. Speaker, today I rise to congratulate my colleagues on voting to remove Representative Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee. The passage of H.R. 76 sends a strong message that we support Israel and the Jewish community. I had a member of the Republican caucus threaten my life, and you all and the Republican caucus rewarded him with one of the most prestigious committee assignments in this Congress. Don't tell me this is about consistency. Don't tell me that this is about an abdic- a-, a condemnation of anti-Semitic remarks when you have a member of the Republican caucus who has, who has talked about Jewish space lasers and an, an entire amount of tropes and also elevated her to some of the highest committee assignments in this body. This is about targeting women of color. The gentlewoman's time has expired. Omar. Gentlemen's time has expired. That our country is failing you today through this chamber. You belong to the gentleman is no longer recognized. My leadership and voice will not be diminished if I am not on this committee for one term. My voice will get louder and stronger, and my leadership will be celebrated around the world as it has been. So take your vote or not. On this vote, the ayes are 218, the nays are 211, with one answering present. The resolution is adopted. High drama in the House today. Some of the most passionate debate we've heard in this new Congress. With the headline on the terminal, GOP boots Omar from panel. Indeed, it was a party line vote, and she is off the Foreign Affairs Committee, just as Speaker McCarthy wanted. You heard the voices there. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar herself, Jan Schakowsky yelling at the House about anti-Semitism, Hakeem Jeffries, and yeah, you heard George Santos in there, too. Congratulating his colleagues on getting this done. 218 211, the vote, a key victory for the new speaker who made last minute deals to make this happen. By the way, the one Republican holdout, Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina, voting to oust Omar after McCarthy pledged to back new rules requiring an ethics committee vote to remove a member from a committee in the future. Let's uh, assemble the panel for their thoughts on this. Jeannie Shanzano, Democratic analyst and Bloomberg politics contributor, joined today by John Hart, Republican strategist, C3 Solutions, longtime operative on Capitol Hill. Uh, John, I'll start with you here. Republicans had a big message to send today. Was it the right one? Well, you know, quite frankly, I think the, the country would have been better off, the Republican Party would be better off if we used the time we spent on this uh, effort and directed it towards the much greater challenge of trying to figure out how to raise the debt limit while putting in some fiscal guardrails. Hmm. So I'm very sympathetic to those who who want to condemn Omar for her anti-Semitic remarks, uh, her irresponsible remarks about 9-11. I think the better way to do that would have been to to offer a censure resolution and then to put Democrats on record, not over a procedural question of removing somebody from a committee, but by keeping it focused on the content of her of her repulsive remarks. Sure. Yeah, I think well, it would have been a better use of the House's time, quite frankly. As Hakeem Jeffries uh, said earlier today or reminded people earlier today, Jeannie, the Democratic Party, the leadership did condemn 
uh, Elon Omar uh, within hours of those comments emerging. Was this about retribution? Yeah, they did, and the remarks were reprehensible, and she has apologized. Um, that said, my view, and, and I agree with John on this, I was not a supporter of the removal of Marjorie Taylor Greene or Gosar. I'm not a removal of Ilhan Omar. Or That's the, an important part of this. It, it is a very important part, hence your question about retribution. Yeah. Um, you know, I do think there is a difference. I think there is a difference when you were talking about Swalwell and Schiff. While I may not support that, the, the, the speaker does have the right for those select committees to make that decision. But on these committees, like Foreign Affairs, it is up to Hakeem Jeffries, it is up to Steny Hoyer. They get to make this decision. The same thing goes when it's on the other side. That's, you know, we talk about a return to regular order when it comes to lawmaking. We should have that here. If somebody has done something reprehensible, it should go through ethics. They should be hmm. publicly rebuked on the floor. They should be, you know, go through the ethics process, but don't get into these kind of votes. And quite frankly, to John's point, it is a waste of everybody's time. Yeah, well, here we are. We wasted uh, quite a number of hours, if you see it that way in the debate today, John. Was this really about the fact that it was foreign affairs? Would you feel differently if it was a less sensitive committee? Well, look, I, I you know, I'm I agree. I, I think taking members off Intel is, mm -hmm. is an appropriate step if there's a clear violation or even a question from the FBI, which there was in, in the cases that, that the speaker addressed with, with Swalwell and uh, one other. Uh, that's appropriate. That's he has the authority to do that as speaker. Uh, but I think in this case, uh, it's it's a legitimate question to raise, but I think it's a better uh, issue again to address through a more a more formal censure process. So yes, it's it's unique that it's foreign affairs, uh, but the allegation didn't necessarily focus on her uh, misuse of of uh, intelligence or mishandling intelligence, which makes it a different matter from anti-Semitic, inappropriate, irresponsible rhetoric. You mentioned Eric Swalwell, who was uh, removed from the Intel Committee, uh, as uh, both Jeannie and John referenced here, along with Adam Schiff. He was on the floor today, had the easel up with the visuals and a tweet from the Judiciary Committee that you might remember, the, the Republican Judiciary Committee. And so I thought, we're going to hold someone accountable for anti-Semitism. Surely it's the author of this tweet. Kanye Elon Trump. October 6th, written by Chairman Jim Jordan. October 8th, what does Kanye say? I'm going to declare DEFCON 3 on the Jews. So surely this tweet came down, right? Came down, was deleted. No. Two more months, it was kept up. Two more months. So don't come here looking at us for anti-Semitism. Look in your own damn mirror before you ever come over here. And I yield back. It's got pretty chippy here. Everybody got a minute. Uh, we, we, we heard and saw a lot of that kind of stuff today. Uh, Jeannie, you heard Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez referring to the Jewish space lasers, Marjorie Taylor Greene and so forth. Uh, is there a point here? Is there a double standard or, or is this, in fact, the committee assignment we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, this is where we are. We're going to these tit for tats. Uh, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez rightly raised the issue of Marjorie Taylor Greene, the space lasers, also the, the wildfires in California, you know, the anti-Semitic conspiracy that, you know, she claimed or tweeted in 2018 led to that. You know, we can keep going back and back, you mm -hmm. know, tit for tat on all of this, but it is not the way to run a Congress. It's not the way to run the House. You should follow the rules that are in place if the speaker has the right to put people on committees, he or she has that right. 
if it is up to the leader of that party, they should have that right. If there's an ethics question, it should go to ethics. This is not complicated, but it is going to lead to a spiral of retribution. And that is, I think, well, a real question. fear. And that's what Republicans are really going to confront when Democrats yeah. take over again. That's the question, John Hart. Is this the new normal? Right. Well, hopefully not. Look, I, I think you do have to fault Speaker Pelosi for for her, her somewhat authoritarian tactics, you know, uh, having worked on Capitol Hill for a long time, mm-hmm. the role of the speaker changed dramatically. And we, we went from an era where we had open rules and open rule means any member can offer an amendment. And the the regulator on the number of, of amendments that are offered is time on the clock and also peer pressure from a member's colleague. So th- there were instances when when Coburn was a member of the House, he he would offer hundreds of amendments to appropriations bills because he wanted to have debates about particular policies and and he would push it to the limit of making his point and then sometimes he went too far sometimes he would dial it back but he was very aware of the of that challenge and uh but the speaker is important because the speaker allowed that to happen and what happened with nancy pelosi is she shut down Hmm. the open amendment process and so part of the reason we see we're in this era of, of one-upsmanship, retribution, performative politics, is Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic Party essentially shut down debate. And so what that does is it incentivizes members to be performance artists, because if they can't voice their concerns through amendments, then they're going to do it through yeah. tweets and other. And so it's a, it's a deeper cultural problem, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. And but both sides are to blame. But but there are but each side has some unique dysfunctions that they've <laughs> contributed to Nancy Pelosi. It contributed a lot of authoritarian dysfunction yeah. to the House of Representatives. John Hart, Jeannie Shanzano, more to follow with our panel. We're going to talk next with Bloomberg Intelligence about the infrastructure laws. We follow the money from Washington to all over the country and which companies are here to benefit. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden's been on the road promoting investments from the infrastructure law. Lately, he was in New York just this week to tout the Gateway Rail Tunnel Project. It's the busiest corridor in the United States of America and one of the busiest in the world. And the problem, a problem anywhere along the line, means delays up and down the East Coast for folks trying to get to work. Therefore, billions of dollars to invest in the project. And he'll surely be talking about this in next week's State of the Union address. But you know who else is talking about it? Caterpillar, other heavy equipment makers, construction companies that stand, of course, all to make billions of dollars on projects for the next several years. That's why many of them supported the bill here in Washington. And we've been hearing a lot more about it this earnings season and wanted to put a finer point on this with an expert. Bloomberg intelligence analyst Chris Cellino covers this group and he's with us right now. Chris, appreciate the time here. Help us put this in perspective just to start off here broadly. How much of a boon is this for companies like Caterpillar? It's big. It's real big. Um, And we think CAT's kind of uniquely positioned here to benefit uh, not only from the infrastructure law, but this wave of government spending. Um, We're also talking the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act. It's hundreds of billions of dollars over the next five plus years. These large infrastructure related projects are equipment intensive. And we think CAT's with its scale, its market leadership position, um, its full product lineup and expansive Mm -hmm. dealer network is really best positioned to cap capitalize on these investments. And we're only just beginning to see some of the funds trickle into their backlogs now. So yeah. even with the economy slowing this year, these bills should provide some uh, mitigation and a downturn and really provide a nice multi-year growth opportunity. 
Yeah, we say multi-year, and the question often here in Washington is, hey, you know, when are people going to see cranes and and projects in their own communities that might help uh, politically help Democrats and some Republicans have voted for this politically. But but on the corporate level, when it comes to making money, how many years are we talking about here? Because we're just getting started, Chris. You're right. I mean, it takes time. Um, you know, like I said, we're just beginning to hear of funds trickling to the backlogs now. So you're looking at probably back half of 2023 before you're starting to see any kind of like meaningful financial impact to a lot of these manufacturers. And I think the, the real tailwind is going to be more in 2024 um, with kind of sustained strength into, into 2025. Caterpillar is the poster child, right, when it comes to earth-moving companies or heavy equipment makers. How big is this group? How many companies uh, are there that stand to benefit and, and, and are competing for that cash? There's really two at the top, Caterpillar being the market leader, um, and then there's also Komatsu, a, a Japanese player who uh, has a large position in construction equipment here in the U.S., um, they're the biggest beneficiaries just from a scale perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also numerous other companies that will benefit from this. If you think about some of the aerial equipment makers like a Terex and an Oshkosh, um, don't forget Deer. Deer has a large construction business yes, and right. growing. They made a, a acquisition of Verkin a number of years back, which got them into road paving equipment. And then CNH Industrial as well also has a construction business. So it, it certainly will benefit the, the group overall. But if you're thinking about the, the large players here, it's, it's Caterpillar and Komatsu. And they've just got multi-year backlogs now, right? Or are they still learning exactly what it's going to look like for the next few years? You know, we, we just had Caterpillar report this week, an interesting um, we saw orders and backlogs increase not only year over year, but sequentially. Mm -hmm. Demand remains very strong. Um, we're over, I think, 30 billion now in the backlog for Caterpillar. This is above average production visibility and has really been constrained by the supply chain. The supply chain is improving, but it's there are still bottlenecks out there and manufacturing efficiencies of getting product out the door. Um, so, so that should improve as the year progresses. And, and maybe that potentially delays some of the financial impact of this infrastructure law. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's more of a, a timing issue than anything. Spending some time with Chris Cialino of Bloomberg Intelligence here on Sound On. It's the intersection, truly, of Washington and Wall Street. You hear the president in one ear, then you hear the earnings report in the other ear. If you're on the terminal, you can't uh, miss the two of them. Chris, what's the what's the sweet stuff? What's the most lucrative type of job here? They're doing a lot of different work when it comes to roads, bridges, tunnels, replacing pipes. Where are the fattest margins in all of this? You know, the infrastructure law just being your more traditional physical infrastructure, roads, bridges, tunnels, mm -hmm. um, that tends to have the most tangible impact. Um, you know, historically, what we've seen is roughly kind of five to seven cents of every dollar spent on infrastructure goes towards construction equipment. So we think that? just the infrastructure law alone creates kind of an incremental, call it 25, $35 billion opportunity for yes. this group. Um, but then when you add in, you know, uh, Inflation Reduction, CHIPS Act, while the benefit may not be a, as great as some of that more physical type infrastructure, mm -hmm. it, it's still meaningful and the dollar amounts are, are quite significant. So it, it does have a compounding effect over time. He's been writing about it since last summer, well, even before that, but since this uh, whole infrastructure law took shape at Bloomberg Intelligence. If you want to stay ahead of the game, follow Chris, and we'd love to stay in touch with you, Chris, uh, because as I think we just pointed out, we're going to be talking about this literally for years. Chris Cellino, also congrats on pronouncing the name the right way. 
Anyone else would have said Cialino, right? Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you, Chris. Don't be a stranger. I'd love to hear quickly from our two panelists on this because it's important stuff for our Bloomberg audience, Jeannie Shanzano and John Hart. This is what Joe Biden's talking about, Jeannie. How does he get a conversation like that across to the American people next Tuesday night without totally wonking out? Yeah, I I mean, it's going to be a challenge, but it's a really important part of what he wants to say, not only next Tuesday in the State of the Union, but in his potential campaign if he chooses to run. Mm -hmm. And that's about the implementation phase of what he was able to accomplish over the last two years. This whole sort of theme that we're seeing emerge about America reborn. And a big part of that is improving our infrastructure, which is wildly in need of repair. Mm -hmm. I live in New York and I can tell you firsthand so much needs to be done on the roads, bridges, tunnels, and everything else here and across the country. So he wants to talk about the implementation phase, and he wants to make that a huge part of what he's talking about going forward. This uh, Listen, he's working on that gateway tunnel for you, uh, Jeannie. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Next time you're on the train, think about it. John, this was a bipartisan bill. President Biden likes to remind everybody, I know not a majority of Republicans did not vote for it, but how much of a help could this be for Republicans on the campaign trail next election? Well, it could be a big help. Look, you know, constitutional conservatives will tell you that there's two things the government should be able to do under our Constitution. One is defense spending. The second is regulate interstate commerce. So there is there's a, a much deeper support for infrastructure spending uh, on the right than I think than people understand. Uh, there's a there's an acceptance that smart infrastructure spending has an incredibly high multiplier effect. Yeah. You know, one point seven six. There's a lot of different studies on it, but it's it's big and it's significant and you know but you have to translate that to common language uh, so a phrase is bang for the buck you get a lot of bang for your buck for certain types of spending not all spending is created equal this is where the keynesians you know drop the ball because if you hire somebody to to take a bucket and pull water <laughs> from one side of a pool and right. pour it in the other side of the pool you're not creating any wealth but if uh-huh. you're as a family if you're investing in your own education your child's education sure that fifty two hundred thousand dollars can translate into twenty million over a lifetime right. or two. John Hart, Jeannie Shansano, great conversation and closing thoughts straight ahead. This is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Sound On brought to you by Innovation Refunds. It's your daily reminder. Yeah, from Innovation Refunds, there is still time to claim the employee retention credit. Unlike the PPP, the ERC is not alone. Business owners can use the ERC to expand their company, pay off debts, hire new talent. The money's there to help your business as you see fit. Learn more at GetRefunds.com. So, happy Groundhog Day. I see a shadow on my stage. And so, no matter how you measure, it's six more weeks of winter weather. Uh, Yeah, Punxsutawney Phil saw the shadow. And Pennsylvania's new governor, Josh Shapiro, tried to make the best of it. Phil may be the draw, but you're the reason I'm here. (laughs) Because you're the very best of Pennsylvania. You're tough. You're resilient, and you know how to have a good time, right? Okay, with six more weeks? I don't know. But who says we need to follow Phil? Just like politics, you know there's a groundhog for every point of view. Enter Maura Healy in one of her first acts. As the governor of Massachusetts travels out to a farm in Lincoln to be with Miss G., the Massachusetts groundhog, who I guess had better news. We observe the Commonwealth of Massachusetts official groundhog, Miss yeah. G, and I declare that Miss G does not appear to have observed her shadow, and therefore, Commonwealth, uh-huh. spring is on its way. Spring is on its way. Okay. Wait a minute. What do you mean? Of course, spring is on its way. You mean in six weeks? The question I have beyond politicians making events like these somehow relevant to their public schedules. Are we in for six more weeks or more of political winter? Because after what we saw today on the House floor, I think it's going to be a lot more than that. Jeannie Shanzano and John Hart with some final thoughts here. Uh, Jeannie, I know you're an optimist. You're probably following Miss G. I am following Miss G. I can't believe she and Phil have disagreed. We need to get them together to sort this out. Yeah, right. Groundhog uh, Day, one of my favorite political days of the year. Every year, I love I'm it. Sorry the to mishaps hear that. and everything else. I know. Talk about geeking out. I'm with Representative Schweiker. Yep. Yeah. I'm there. Nobody got bit today, though. Uh, at least. But you know, John. In all seriousness, it, we've we've got a dialogue that's starting here, apparently, between the Speaker and the President. But the Some of the vitriols, the anger that we saw today on the House floor back and forth over this Elon Omar incident yesterday about uh, condemning uh, the horrors of socialism don't give you a lot of hope for the next year, uh, do they? Well, look, I think voters want to see results, and I think they'll they'll correct our political economy and just, you know, to, to geek out a minute. I think the multiplier effect issue is really important. I think when people see results from certain types of investments, uh, I think that's a good thing. We just have to get our, our deficit under control so we can do other things like upgrade our transmission lines, mm-hmm. do other infrastructure that's going to benefit. And that'll ch- start to change the political culture when they see positive results coming out of Washington. I guess I failed to mention Staten Island, Chuck. Does every state have I mean, should there be like a groundhog convention? He says early spring too, Jeannie. This is tilting in your favor. That's right. And I usually do go with Chuck. I favorite Chuck. And I I like John's very optimistic tone, by the way. Yeah, me too. 
I didn't feel that way after listening to them today. And I was thinking that when the stakes get higher, it's going to get worse. But hopefully mm-hmm. John is right and things are going to turn around. Wait, listen to you two guys uh, with good feelings, maybe about the, the State of the Union next week. They're all going to be forced into one room. Hey, John, don't be a stranger. It was great to have you with us. John Hart, Republican strategist, co-founder C3 Solutions, and you know Jeannie, Shan Zeno. There's only one. Bloomberg Politics contributor and Democratic analyst. You're the best, Jeannie. Thank you. We'll do it again tomorrow on the fastest hour in politics. And we will talk more about not only is it Jobs Day already? Yeah, Jobs Day with expert analysis and the political side of those numbers. But also an important look ahead to next week. It's going to be a big one. The political Super Bowl, the Super Bowl of politics next Tuesday night with special coverage here on the State of the Union. I'm Joe Matthew. I'll meet you back here tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.